geology, it's under the surface, the spring that flows out. The interesting thing is there's also this great clamor for community. Many of you live in planned communities. Tucson is world famous for them. Thank you, California. We have all these planned communities for the purpose of what? Creating community where we can be hyper-individuals, very private, self-determining, closing our garage doors, going to our back porches to be the patio man, the captain and king of our destiny. That, that in some sense really is defining our culture out here in Tucson. It's America, but in Tucson in particular, this is frontierism. This is the wild, wild west. People don't come out here to get known. They come out here to get lost. And they want everybody else to do the same. Get lost. I've got hobbies to entertain, retirement to enjoy. I've given at the church. I've given at the office. I just want to come out here and forge my new way in my new home. Another way we deal with the communities out here is I affectionately call most of these western communities like Tucson, Phoenix, Las Vegas, carousel communities. People get on, they go for a ride for about two or three years, and they hop off to the next community. Very difficult to really get to know people in a culture and society like we live in. We understand that. That's a reality that we live with. But another thing I want us to think about, though, is, is that in some ways... While we may say, well, that's not good, and we don't like that, and we don't agree with that, I want you to think about two other ways that our culture generally tends to operate and that we as Christians generally tend to operate with it. And that is either the notion of the collective or the notion of the crowd. I want to tell you what the two, those two different things are, and then we'll see that they really are connected together. The collective, for those of you that are Star Trek fans, especially um, those of you who know what the Borg is, and I see some few faces lightening up, but basically the Borg are these conglomeration of all these different planetary peoples that have been overrun by the Borg, and the Borg's goal is to attain perfection in movement, perfection in everything, precision is prized, efficiency, no wasted time, no wasted space. People are overhauled and hybrid, and they become seven of nine, eight of ten, they're known by their being a part of the collective. Notice what's happening there. Their individuality is going away. They are part of the collective. And there's a part of our society that highly prizes this, at least in our world. It prizes the collective. Don't rock the boat. Be a part of the collective. Keep the ship moving. In fact, most corporations in some sense want you to operate in some form or fashion in the collective. Because that makes things run smoothly, efficiently, effectively. The other side of this equation is the crowd. And the interesting thing about the crowd is that the crowd is a bunch of individuals who are very committed to being individual. That's what they're committed to. But they get within a whole group of people, and I'll use something a little closer to home for most of us. Think about what happens with Paul in Ephesus when he goes and he cast out the demon from that girl and the whole city gets in an uproar and they drag him off to the magistrates because by golly he has offended them and if he continues in his way great Artemis of the Ephesians will be undermined. Now here's the interesting part of that crowd mentality. 
Notice that you really don't know anything about any of the individuals. You don't know what really makes them tick. You don't know what really matters to them. All you know is they have this one big cause. Artemis of the Ephesians is being undermined. And so this mob rule, this mass mentality hordes into this. And notice what the magistrate says to them. You people need to go home. You're creating an uproar. Have you really considered the cost? Have you really considered the consequences of what you've done today? Go home. Now, the, what I want you to understand is that those two mentalities run very rampant within our culture. And the irony is that in a culture that says we highly prize individualism, we highly prize privacy, we highly prize these things, what they're really committed to is making sure that the status quo is maintained and that individuality, or as C.S. Lewis calls it, our personality is squelched and done away with. Everything pretty much moves along without too many bumps in the road as long as you keep everything either in the collective or in the crowd. See, we know in our culture when an individual stands up, whether we agree with them or not, we know them because they're an individual. They seem to just not run within the system. What's wrong with them? They're making a mess of the system. And what I want you to understand is, is that the collective and the crowd are not community. That's not community. And individualism is very different from being an individual who has a particular personality, particular gifts, particular callings. And what we're going to look at in this text this morning is we're going to begin to see that the text is going to unfold for us a very different way of life, a very different worldview that we should operate off of. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least draw us in a little closer and maybe rub us a little closer to home. Because I want us to understand that the church has not been immune to this, this notion of privacy, this notion of individualism, this notion of self-determination. And I want you to hear the words of this song, which many of you may know, and I want you just to listen to it, and I want you to hear it. And I'm going to tell you a little history about this hymn, and then we're going to move into the text itself. Here's how the hymn goes. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I'd stay in the garden with him, though the night around me be falling. But he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever no. Now, I don't usually like to take apart a hymn and destroy it, but I want you to know that the history of this hymn is basically the hymn writer, and I've read it from the man's mouth himself, is a reflection on Mary Magdalene as she went into the garden to see the buried Christ. And she sees the gardener, she sees him, and this whole experience, this man says, he was just enraptured with Mary Magdalene alone. With Jesus. The irony of it is, is that Jesus himself says, do not cling to me. 
Go and tell the other disciples, and especially Peter, who's hurting and wounded and needs a good word. Notice the whole point of that passage has nothing to do with being in the garden alone with Jesus. And in fact, when we get back to Genesis, what is the first thing we hear in verse 18? It is not good for the man in the garden to be alone. It's not good to be alone. There's something wrong with that. There's something not right about being alone. And yet, in American Christianity, what is most prized is our quiet time, our personal Bible study, our alone prayer time, our this, that, and the other. And please don't hear me disparaging any of that, reading your Bible alone and those stuff. I'm not disparaging it. I'm saying that that's never for the purpose of being alone. It is always for the purpose of looking for the other. And that's the point of Genesis chapter 2, is that it's not good for the man to be alone. So we need to ask some questions this morning of this and understand it. Why is being alone not good? That seems like a logical question. Why? Because quite frankly, if we're really honest with ourselves, a whole bunch of us, when we get home from a long day at work, the last thing we want to do usually is to come into a great corporate gathering. Many a person walks in from being a school teacher, being a pastor, being an engineer, being whatever you are, and you go, you know, I just need... And at our home, it's kind of become a, a rule that Pop at least gets at least 30 seconds, preferably 30 minutes, <laughs> to catch his breath. Sometimes Jane and I have actually gotten to the point to where we talk on the phone as I drive home so that by the time I get home, we're able to kind of engage with our children because we know they need to be cared for. But see, the whole point is, is that there's something about being alone that we need, we need those times of refreshment at times, but they're not good unto themselves, and they're certainly not good for, to perpetuate them. It's not good for us to sit alone all the time. And there's a sense in which we should never really truly be alone. Now, the first thing I want you to look at in this passage is, is God declares and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the question, like I said, we're asking is, why is being alone not good? Well, the first reason why, and this may seem obvious, it may seem kind of ten tangential, but it's because God says it is. And while it'd be easy to run across that and go, well, okay, now let's get on with the other good reasons, I want us just to stop for a minute and rest with that. God says it's not good to be alone. And I just want to contend with you that as Americans and as human beings, but we just personify really well what being human beings is in a fallen state, we don't like anyone telling us what to do or what to think. And here in this text, God says, He has the audacity to declare to us that being alone is not good. And we have to do something with that. We have to basically come to terms with that. We have to ask ourselves sometimes, is the fact that I pursue being alone, that somehow when I go off in the mountains and watch that beautiful sunset or watch that beautiful sunrise or I'm walking through the wilderness and I'm kind of just at peace with God. Jeshua and I went to the Coronado, or the, rather the Chiricahua Mountains and hiked 7.3 miles on Friday and 
Just had a great time together. Just enjoyed our time immensely. And there's a sense in which I can honestly tell you that there were times where he and I would have enough space between us and he's walking by himself thinking and I'm walking by myself thinking and it's just great. There's nobody else around. There's no cell phones. There's no telephones. There's no email. There's no anything. It's just me and the woods and the rattlesnake and the deer and the other such critters that I got to see and it's quite nice. But see, there's something wrong if I stay there and say, but this is what I, this is the way it always ought to be. See, there were points where I would turn around and say, Jess, come on, or he would stop and say, Pop, come on. And we would sing together. We were singing some hymns and other things together. And there was this sense of, we may have at times been a little farther apart from each other where we could kind of think and reflect, but there was the reality that one of us was always there somewhere on the trail together. There was that sense of togetherness and that sense of enjoying this together. And there was that sense of, isn't this great and wonderful looking and reflecting on God's good creation and rejoicing together. In fact, there's something right about that. There's something the way it's supposed to be. Now, I'd be remiss if I said, if I just said, God said it. That's the way it is. Let's depart. But I do want us to wrestle with times when God says things, how willingly are we to hear it? How often are we really willing to listen when God says, that's the way it is? Second thing I want us to look at is this. We know back from Genesis chapter 1 that God is never alone. Right? God is always in company together. There's not just the one unipersonal God. There's the one in three God. Let us make man in our image. We. Let we make this man in our image. Now notice what would happen if, if you're a we and you make a man in your image and he's there all by himself, is he really able to reflect your image? No. It's not good for the man to be alone. Why? Because the very image of God is not aloneness. It is always togetherness. It is always community. God is never alone. He's always connected with one of and both of the other two persons. We said the Nicene Creed for a reason this morning, for us to be reminded that we don't worship a God that is just one and that's it. We worship a God who's three in one. Deny it, you lose your soul. Try to understand it, you lose your mind. But He's three in one. The Trinity. We believe that. We affirm that. And we understand that what that tells us is that God, together as He's imaged, cannot be by Himself. He cannot be imaged by one person all by themselves. It must be with a community because He Himself is a community. Now, the last thing I want us to notice is, is remember back in Genesis chapter 1, that God kept saying over and over again, and remember when we say God, we're not saying God alone. We're saying God, three persons, kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. It's very good. But here He says, it's not good. It's not good. And what I want you to understand is, is that there is something that the Trinity does on a regular basis, and that's this. Look Rejoice. Look. Rejoice. See it. It's good. See it. It's good. And there's this inner circle of rejoicing and joy that is filling the Trinity continuously. They rejoice together. 
And what I want you to see is, is that Adam was standing there alone. What is that telling you he wasn't really able to do? He wasn't really able to rejoice. He could look, but he couldn't rejoice. Because rejoicing is not an individual thing. It is a community thing. It's to look and rejoice. So here's a second question I want us to look at then. What do we need for community? The first thing it should be obvious we need is a relationship with God. That's, we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. That's first. A relationship with God is primary. It has to begin there. God makes, creates. He creates us in His image to relate to Him. So it's obvious to us from the text that relating to God is crucial, is vital. But we also need to, be, to relate to ourselves. Individuality or personality is necessary. It's not about a bunch of clones and drones going about eking out an existence with all one mindset. It's rather this group of people developed who have personality and distinction and difference. There is a sense in which we want to say that Scripture does agree with viva la difference. Not all the ways that viva la difference is used, but there is a sense in which there's something beautiful about the fact that people aren't the same. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes a little more because I think, it, I think the text really draws that out. But the sense we want to see is God didn't make just one kind of animal. God didn't make just one color flower. God didn't make all the butterflies that look exactly the same. He created all sorts of things, beautiful, spectacular, And He created people, not all to be the same thing. We're not all supposed to be the same occupation, the same personality, the same disposition. There's supposed to be a diversity from the very beginning. And so what we see here is the fact that we have to be able to relate to ourselves. We have to understand ourselves. We have to know ourselves and understand our capacities, understand our gifts. And we talked about that a lot last week in looking at our work and our calling and how we're made and what our gifts are. So we understand that the text draws us to consider that as well. But the third thing we need is we need a relationship with one another. And Francis Schaeffer says in that quote that's in the front of your bulletins, this is vital. And I want to talk about why we would say that's vital. Adam had the first two of those things in perfection. You realize that when God makes this declaration that it's not good for the man to be alone, Adam had a relationship with God that was perfect, and he had a relationship with himself that was perfect. He was innocent. He had the first two in perfection, and yet it's still not good. Adam had a calling. Adam was doing what he was made to do. God basically created all the animals, brought them to Adam. Adam as a sub-creator, not the creator, but a sub-creator, a co-worker, named them. Everything, when he looked at them, he said, this is what it is. So Adam was fulfilled in his work, in his calling. He's doing all the things he's supposed to do, and yet it's not good for him to be alone. You see the point. The text is trying to build up this point that Adam's doing everything he was made to do. He's in a right relationship with God. He's in the garden alone with God. And everything's not right. Everything's not okay. It's not good. Now, the point is is that he cannot rejoice alone. This is why when you get down to verse 23, Adam says, At last. See, you don't feel it unless you really start to get in the rhythm of this text. Okay, God's made me. He's put me in the garden. He's made a covenant with me. I'm doing all these things. I'm doing what He's asked me to do. The rhythm of creation's going. It's going, but there's something wrong. What can be wrong with perfection? 
perfect world, perfect man, perfect God. Everything's not perfect. The rhythm is out of joint. And the text is trying to draw you to it so that when you get to that at last, or finally, you feel the relief of the text. Why is having someone else so important? Well, here's a couple of reasons you might consider. You cannot really know yourself or God without another person. C.S. Lewis and the Four Loves draws out this connection, which is wonderful. If you've never read the Four Loves, you ought to read it. I'll always, I'll always caveat Lewis by saying he always says some crazy, wacky thing that you never can make any sense of, but, the, but you, know, you push through that to get to the gold because there's so much gold there to be mined. All that said, this is part of the gold. Is He talks about the fact that he had a friend and another friend, and they were in this friendship together, and they would spend time together, and they enjoyed one another, and one of the friends died. And so Lewis thought in his mind, well, yes, I've lost this friend, but now I have more of my other friend. And what he discovered was, is that when, he, when this friend died, the person I think it's Robert in, 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 the, in the story. Robert was less of Robert because the other person had brought out a part of Robert that C.S. Lewis or Jack could not bring out. The fact is that this person, all this person's diversity, all this person's individuality, all this person's personality needed other people to allow it to show forth its full benefit, its full glory, its full usefulness. Minus the person, it wasn't fully seen. And then Lewis takes that and puts it on to Jesus. He says, Jesus was a man. Jesus was a person. And is it possible that I alone can really know everything there is to know about Jesus? And the obvious answer is, no. I need another and another, and another, and another. And as we all get to know one another, we begin to see the beauty. And rather than being stifling of the individual, it rather allows the individual to explode out. Personality begins to be seen and displayed in a community, not a collective, not a crowd. Those things tend to stifle it. But community draws it out. Another thing we want to look at here is the text tells us that God did not bring someone just like Adam, but one who was complementary to him. Ezer, that word helper in the text, means someone who helps by bringing something to the equation that you don't or you can't. Now, I understand, and for those of you who have been here for the last few months, we looked at this pretty extensively. We looked at this passage in light of Ephesians chapter 5. I'm not trying to diminish the marital aspect of this at all. But I think there's more here than just, okay, men and women get married. I think there's a lot more going on here. And what I want you to see is this reality that as we begin to look at this text, the idea is that God doesn't bring Adam another Adam. And I'm not just talking about in the sense of the same gender. It's the point that Eve is not Adam. She brings all kinds of things to the table that are distinct from Adam. Not just her gender. She is a personality not like his. She operates in ways he doesn't operate. She thinks in ways he doesn't operate. And guess what that does to us, men and women? Even in perfection, what we're being told is is that iron was supposed to sharpen iron. That 
the differences were actually supposed to make people grow and develop. There's a sense in which Adam, though innocent, was not everything he was supposed to be. And neither was Eve. As they're brought together, they begin to complement and move on. Think about what that does to us in the church as a community of faith. We're supposed to be coming together and drawing one another out, helping one another develop and move forward and grow in the ways that we need to grow. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what humanity was made for, was to help one another continue to be all to quote this thing, you could be. That was the point. There was truth and reality in that. And so we see that part of the reason why we need another person is because they help to stretch us. They help to develop us. They help to make us what we are not able in making ourselves. And this part here may be hard for us to think about, but I want you to think about this. It also was because Adam needed someone to know him and that he could be known by, or that he could know, rather. He needed someone to both know him and that he could know. He was not just to be a member of the crowd. He was not just supposed to be a member of the collective, and they weren't supposed to just drone out their calling before the Lord in the garden. Rather, there was supposed to be beauty in their personality, beauty in their relationship, beauty in their character. And so the, the idea here is, is that Adam was supposed to have someone whom he had to care for. Responsibility was given to him. The realities of being in this mutual relationship. Now think about what this does to us in our modern context. This means that in a real sense, you cannot be merely an internet friend. You can't just be an instant message buddy. You can't just be blogger pals. You can't just be text phone friends. I don't care how many BFFs you have. If you don't understand that you need to be with somebody who actually can interact with you, can see your flaws, can see how you're not doing all that you're supposed to do, can actually get in your face and get in your space, not just my space on the computer, but my space at my house, at the local pub, at the local coffee shop, in class, hanging out at the U, wherever. See, the point is, is that you need someone who actually invades your territory. And notice, men and women, it, this is not the problem of technology. Technology is only being developed to help perpetuate the value system. So see, we want to say, what's well, globalization? Well, it's technology. Well, it's all these things. It's not the stuff. Because you can use email and texting and all kinds of things in helping to perpetuate a relationship that is being had face-to-face, -to -face, together. But if those things become the means by which you have relationship, develop, avoid face-to-face -face context, there's a problem. And don't you see the problem, especially in these dear people who get on the internet and they pour out all this garbage of their inner lives, all this, and you just think, wow, those people are just being exposed and they're just laying bare their heart. Men and women, please don't be so naive. Coming from a divorced home, living with both sets of my grandparents, I learned to be the chameleon of chameleons. And one thing any player learns to do is you learn how to figure out the circumstances you're in and how 
to be about that system. When you're with your grandparents, of course it's terrible what's happening at your house with your mom. When you're with one set, I mean, of course it's horrible. When you're with the other set of grandparents, about how, of course it's terrible that my dad didn't talk to me for 12 years. Of course it is. And it was. I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm more saying that don't you understand how the human mind and heart works? It uses even exposure to not be exposed. See, because if you're so wrapped up in all this junk, you don't have time to really get to know me. Of course, you know all my circumstances. You know all this stuff that's happened to me. You know I was an abused child. You know I was sexually molested. You know all these, and all that stuff is out there, and you're so busy being enamored with that, you never really get to know me. And don't you see what the text is telling us? The text is telling us that Adam had someone that understood what was underneath the veneer. Now, I'm not saying there was sin in the garden because there wasn't. And we know flat out that these two people interacted together perfectly in harmony. But the point is, don't you see that God, even in the creation of human beings, anticipated the fact that human beings need people in their face, in their lives, up close and personal, because we are masters at hiding. We are masters at keeping walls up and constantly changing the subject and hindering you from really getting at who we really, really are. Which then brings us to the last question. How can we have community? Well, you have to be willing to be exposed. You have to be willing to be exposed to have community. You have to be willing to let people in. And here's the point. None of us are really willing to do that. That's our dilemma, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what verse 25 tells us that we know is not our case? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's not a person in this room that really willing, and I'm not just talking about physically, although physically too, but realize this, even, and this is what I'm trying to get you to understand. Look, there's a whole industry, men and women, both soft and hardcore, a whole industry of people exposing their bodies to hinder you from ever really getting to know what's really happening in people's lives. Don't you understand that? Don't you understand how depersonalizing so many things in our culture are that we're not really willing to be exposed, that all this exposure is really just a sham for cloak and hiding and keeping ourselves away? See, we're not really willing to be exposed. We're afraid. We're ashamed. We are. Those of us who are getting a little older in age and can remember when our svelte bodies used to be more svelte than they are these days, the mind is willing, but the flesh is flabby. And that's the reality that we live in. The point is that just as surely as we don't want to have that part of us exposed, we don't really want to expose ourselves either. And see, if you can begin to understand it, if you can understand that Adam and Eve stood in the garden naked, not just physically naked, though they were, but completely open and honest with one another, there was no guilt. There was no shame. They just stood there and related and developed. Another C.S. Lewis book you ought to read, if you haven't, is, is Paralandra. Even if you don't read the whole of the Space Trilogy, Paralandra is phenomenal. Because on Paralandra, which is Venus... 
the woman there is imperfection. And how Lewis can somehow make you feel like what it would feel like to talk to somebody that had never sinned is beyond me. But he does. You feel like this woman literally knows what innocence is like. And it's all this dialogue with these people who clearly know what sin is. And you're having this dialogue with her. She goes, oh, you make me wise. Not you make me wicked. It's, it's the idea of she constantly was trusting in the maker. We don't sin against the maker, but you make interesting points. And I have to consider that. Oh, you make me wise. Oh, you make me grow. Oh, you make me develop. See, and the sense is, is that as Adam and Eve talked and as they discussed and as they looked and as they rejoiced and as they continued to spread and do what they were called to do, they were developing and growing unashamed, naked, beautiful, wonderful. And see, men and women, don't you want that? Don't you deep down inside desperately say, that's what I want. I want somehow to get into a relationship with somebody that I really can just pull down all the draperies Pull down all the blinds. Get rid of them. Have the windows fully exposed. You can just look in. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just friendship and love and care. And any of us who have really cared for another person feel this angst. We want somehow to be closer than we're able to be because we're afraid. Because if that person really knew what we really thought, what would we do? See, it's right there. If you're at that point, you're ready to hear the point of the passage. Why God tells us, this is how I made you. So that you feel the dilemma and then you're ready for the remedy. But see, don't you understand that 2,000 years ago, Christ was stripped naked. I'm not talking about the little picture with the loincloth on it. No, stripped naked. He was fully exposed. He came from heaven and lived as a perfect man, which meant he always said the truth, always put himself on the line, always gave himself to being hurt, to being ripped asunder mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He always was there, exposed. And on the cross, He showed it. He bore His breast. We always guard. Men know it. We, we protect ourselves. We keep our breast covered. Christ exposed Himself on that cross. Why? He was humiliated, ashamed, put to shame on that cross. Why? So that people might be drawn into community where they didn't have to live under the tyranny of fear, of guilt, of shame. You see, if you can begin to say, Lord Jesus, You, You have come. You have shown Yourself. Then you can begin to say with Adam, at last, Finally, a helper has been found that's suitable, that meets my need, that enables me to be what I need to be. Unless you think somehow I'm being sacrilegious, Ezer, that Hebrew word that's used of Eve, the helper, most places in the Scripture is used of God, the helper. So if you come to a place where you really see the beauty of what Christ did, that He came, to be the helper of humanity. 
that you're ready to find yourself in community, to find yourself being able to little bit by little bit, more and more, let yourself be seen, let yourself be known. Why? Because what is there to fear? If God is for you, who can be against you? The one who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God, clothed in His righteousness. What have you to fear? If you walk in Christ today, what have you to fear? And if you don't, don't leave today without making that a reality in your life. Know Him. Claim Him as your very own. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.